What's going on and welcome back to the Look Mom, I'm Hustling podcast. We've got some high energy content today for you guys. Episode 45, we're ready and raring for 2023. 100%. We've got some really good articles to choose from today, so I'm excited to go through them. Yep. So we're going to get into some interesting stuff. Consumerism. Oof. We've done an episode in the past about hoarders versus hustlers. We have. We found some uh, interesting data about how much stuff we're buying and how much storage space we're paying for here in Australia and in the US, spending absurd amounts of money just to store stuff that we don't actually need, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, 100%. It's like a fine line between like hustling or like hoarding and like actually collecting and stuff as well, which is really interesting. Collecting's fun, but if it's just sitting around, you're paying for it, paying for the space anyway. Mm-hmm. Seems kind of pointless to me. We'll get into that. Kind of interesting. Entrepreneur season. We're going through recession, some dark times. Uh, a lot of quiet quitting and stuff going on in the workplace. I think Amazon just laid off 18,000 people, which is crazy, and they're going to probably lay off more. So yeah. we're going to get into um, some priceless lessons for first-time entrepreneurs and how to navigate that entire new world. If you're interested in founding a company or starting something from the ground up, we'll get some interesting insights into how to make it effective and efficient across the board. Yeah, and being a new year, new goals, um, a lot of this stuff is sort of coming out. So it's some really interesting takeaways. Yep, we're going to get into Nike and Netflix. They've done a new, done a new partnership. Um, they're basically adding some at-home workout content, which is an interesting take on the streaming platforms. No one's really done it yet. And Nike, biggest sportswear company, and then Netflix, biggest streaming platform. A nice little collab there. We'll get into that. Kind of interesting. And sadly, Barbara Walters has passed away. The OG, the woman OG anchor. Trailblazer. Um, I know, 100% a trailblazer. So going to have a bit of a look at her life, the people that she sort of interviewed. Um, yeah, just I didn't know too much about her. So it was really interesting sort of reading up and seeing what she's done. We've had a few uh, passing, passaways, passing passaways aways yeah. of some older people. They always say it comes in threes, right? They do, the yeah. The yeah. passed away. Yep. There was someone else that passed away. Barbara Walters. And I feel like there was like some sort of Aussie icon that we should remember. <laughs> probably every other day. That's the interesting thing about the whole boomer generation, a little bit older than boomers. But I think there's like, I heard a stat in America, like 10,000 um, people turn 65 or like into that retirement age, like every single day. So they're, the boomer generation so large and they're getting sort of moving into that older retirement bracket and then- Elderly age, so it's something I learned at uni. Actually, is like they're gonna we're gonna need more and more um, facilities and home care and stuff for that aging generation, and it could potentially put a massive burden on the economy in a decade or two's time. Yeah, I wonder if like because I know quite a few babies and stuff were born like from COVID and everything as well. So I wonder what that generation will be called. I feel like there's probably less. I mean, we did an episode about the- oh, we did too about the slow population. decline of the yeah. population that's sort of happening. But I wonder if there was like a sort of a spike during COVID. Maybe a little one. Yeah, maybe a little spike. I mean, there is that Roe v. Wade um, new new uh, law in the US, so yeah. potentially not as much now post COVID, but we'll see. Or well, didn't it get? I don't know. I can't can't keep up. I think it's got reversed and then not oh, reversed, it's and then probably yeah, triple it's, backflip. I think so. One of those uh, classic American backflips. Interesting. All right, we'll get into the first uh, topic of the day: consumerism bloating our household. Uh, Australians are paying. This is from the Guardian. Australians mm-hmm. are paying one hundred and sixty three dollars a month to store excess stuff. How can we curb the desire to consume? So obviously, we just everyone just buys so much consumerism. You go to the mm-hmm. shops, there's plenty of things to buy. Even if you're not a collector, or or like you like buying, you just there's always clothes or gadgets you can always buy, or there's always something new coming out every year. I mean, we did an episode last week about tech trends, and mm-hmm. we're kind of fueling that momentum a little bit by showcasing some of the items that you can spend money on. Um, which I mean, we're storing a lot and paying a lot to store stuff, which is insane considering. 
the size of houses is growing so much. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a perfect tie-in. Controversial radio figure, Alan Job, previous radio figure, mm-hmm. Alan Jones, notorious for like stirring up the headlines a little bit, is auctioning off basically his entire contents of his home. Yeah. So it's like it's kind of an interesting tie-in. Like we're spending all this money mm-hmm. on items and then we spend money to store the items and then someone as like famous and wealthy as him is just like, it's kind of worthless to him yeah. and he just wants to get rid of it all and sell it anyway. So, like, is the stuff we're buying even, even like, necessary or is it worth it? Well, what I was actually reading the other day was uh, because a lot of people were building properties, right, but because of um, stock issues and people not being able to get, you know, supplies and due to labor costs and stuff going up, a lot of housing has been delayed. So just say you bought a house, right, and you're going to be moving into a new, bigger, better house soon, the one that you're renting is always going to be smaller and you've downsized, right? So you have all this extra stuff, so they've had to put it in storage. But now that everything's been delayed, like supply-wise, like construction's taking a lot longer, people are having to have their stuff in storage for longer as well, which was a really interesting point. It was heaps of – I read this about a fortnight ago. There's heaps of – what are they, what are they called? Like um, building contractors, like companies that like do hundreds and hundreds of properties at the same time. Mm-hmm. One thing is the supply shortage of the supplies, um, but a lot of them are just going into administration and shutting yes. down. So people's houses are getting just left there half built. I don't know mm-hmm. what the, the laws are or the insurance sort of side of things are in that regard, but like there's so many properties that are just going to be like half built. Yeah. They've probably been waiting two years for supplies now. The company, the building contractors just go belly up. Yep. And you're renting like a small little apartment with like yep. putting your three kids in there, being like, oh, don't worry, kids. We'll be, will you be know, we'll be out in like six months. Don't worry. You'll yep. have all your big bedrooms and stuff. And, you know, their, you know, oak furniture is in a storage place somewhere. The and, oak furniture. Yeah, I don't know. That was like the fanciest <laughs> thing I could think of. Oak, walnut. <laughs> we need, Mar- we need the, to learn the marble our countertops. Yeah. I'm not a wood expert. No. Just, just yet, anyway. Um, so this article is from The Guardian, as I mentioned. Australians are paying $163 a month to store. Excess stuff. The number one, so this is quote, the number one item stored in these facilities is furniture. So potentially oak furniture. Yeah. Other items we cannot fit in our houses include appliances and electronics, hobby items, sports equipment, collectibles, memorabilia, books and photographs, cars and wine. Yeah. So, so all yeah. those kayaks. Kayaks. Yeah, that you can't fit in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my dad's got one, never used it. He's in his uh, 70s now. Oh, it's roped up into the roof, It's just right? roped up into the roof. So that's. An interesting point as well. Like we have, everyone has so much space above them. Mm -hmm. So you need to utilize every square inch or cubic inch, I guess you'd call it, of space. In in relation to storage units, 100%. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The massive growth of the household storage industry is a sign of overconsumption. People who own lots of stuff or who collect things are not necessarily hoarders, but may struggle to part with personal and household possessions. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily have that addictive or obsessive nature of wanting to have it all, but they just have some sort of like buying compulsion in a way. Buying compulsion and um, just you know a, a strong connection to the items that they're buying. Mm-hmm. The reason um, can in part be explained by Belk's concept of the extended self. This is when possessions become part of our identity and signal to others who we are and importantly who we want to be. Interesting. But if you buy things to like impress other people and, and show them that you you who you want to be or who you want to be seen as and it's in storage, it kind of defeats the purpose. It does, yeah. So like if you if you do that, then what at what point does it become pointless about buying those things? Like do you just end up 
keeping it in storage forever? Do you cycle in and out of the storage? So, you know, summer season, you'd have different stuff. Winter season, you'd have other stuff in the house. Yeah, you pull it out of storage for Christmas time and show off an item. Like if you have relatives coming, Mm. like, I'm going to pull this interesting thing out of storage and put it on showcase for when people come over and then put it back. Well, you do see those like big Christmas displays and stuff or big Halloween displays. Like where do they store them? Well, that's what we have. When we did a a YouTube live stream one time, we went and bought some Halloween decorations. I'm like, oh, this is just pointless consumption and it's sitting mm-hmm. in a box luckily we have plenty of storage space we do but yeah i can imagine if you're in a smaller townhouse or something mm-hmm. you you want to have your christmas stuff up every year but yeah. like you can't store it anywhere so it makes no sense to me though to pay for a storage unit just to store a once a year seasonal type of item yeah. like a christmas tree and then is it just like the excess excess stuff that you sort of forget about so rather than having that habitual spring clean or that cleaning out of your stuff every now and then it just gets forgotten about in storage and then it just keeps building on top and building on top and building on top and the payments keep building as well yeah, that's exactly. probably the the highlight of this episode of this uh topic rather mm. it's like you're paying for it yes like you're already paying for your rent or your mortgage as it is. Yeah. How much did you say was like on average the One, cost of the unit? 163 a month. So how much is that times 12, Mr. Math Guy? 163 times 12 is two grand. So that's two grand a year. Like that's quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a bit. Hmm. Um, and I mean, we have our little eBay business. It's kind of starting to encroach the house mm-hmm. out of the garage. And like I was even looking at storage options for moving the business into, right? Mm-hmm. And- they only started like little three by three meter ones. Um, I'm assuming that's what most people have is like the smaller one. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what a five by five type thing is or something that you can fit a car into is probably more than $163 yeah. a month. And depending what you want in the unit. So like if you want electricity, I know that's more expensive. Yep. Like, yeah. Insurance. Mm-hmm. Many Australians, this is from the article, many Australians live in small houses or apartments that lack space for all their things. Even those in larger houses find that they are overflowing with possessions but are loath to give them up, give up some of them. The solution is we pay someone else to store our possessions and we pay a lot. Self-storage in Australia, or Australasia rather, has grown into a $1.5 billion industry. And I've got another article I'm going to show in a second mm-hmm. uh, about how it sort of started the whole industry in the right. US, right? Uh, there, so keep this stat in mind for the next little article. There are, there are about 2,000 self-storage facilities across Australia and New Zealand. 2,000. It's quite a bit. It's quite a bit. But so, like obviously, they've probably got about- like 100 in each of them, right? That's like, yeah. That'd be like the facilities themselves, not the actual mm-hmm. units within them. Gotcha. So, 2,000. Um, yeah, that's, that's an article. But then I've got this other one here highlighting the US side of things, which obviously- you increase the population scale. You can imagine how insane it is in the US. Oh, of course. Yeah, you just time, like like compared to Australia for America, you just times it all by 10, right? Yeah. Um, so this is sort of flying in the face of uh, minimalism. So like we don't collect too much stuff. Like we do a, a cull quite frequently. We do live in a, we do rent a four bedroom house and there's a lot of space. We probably utilize... 50 or 60% of it, yeah. realistically. Like, it looks like that we're collectors with the, if, yeah. if you're watching the video version, but this show. is literally all our stuff, like collectible kind yeah. of stuff that's in the background here. We're not minimalist exactly. Like, I think there was a term called cozy min- minimalist. So, like, cozy we, minimalist. Yeah. Yeah. So, we like a couple of things and like nice looking things, but yeah, we don't have a overload of stuff. Like, we, 
color well you color your clothes a little bit more regularly I than the, i do the yeah. attachment issue i'd like i'm pretty hard to please mm-hmm. and finding like an interesting item but it's more like i'm not that attached to it no and like i'm the same i don't have much of an emotional attachment to the items that we do have um so if we end up having to clear it out because there's not enough space like we're totally fine to do that because we went from a one bedroom apartment to like this space here so we actually didn't have a lot of belongings to begin with and we have only we still are only still building on top of it so we yeah. still don't have a lot of stuff we've been really. here for like four years three or four years and it's barely even uh, like furnished added upon yeah. compared to what we were at <laughs> normally so this article is from governing.com and it's called too much stuff americans and their storage units so nearly 10 percent of the american people rent a storage facility 10 percent. that's quite a bit one in 11 americans pays an average of 91 dollars per month so i mean if we just do 91 USD to AUD, it's about $130 again. So roughly about so the same. It's pretty much the same. Mm. Fixed price, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, $91 USD per month for self-storage, finding a place for material overflow for the American dream. Storage facilities are a $38 billion industry. Whoa. So here we're at 1.5, you're timesing it by 30. Yeah. Roughly. Um, which is one of the surest business investments in America with an annual growth rate of over 7%. So if you want to, I mean, we're not financial experts. Mm-hmm. If you want to get into um, some investment opportunities, I'm not sure if any of these um, bigger storage companies are like public or whatever, but could be an interesting way to, or place to put your money. Well, it sort of makes sense because they even have reality TV shows around centered around like storage units, like storage wars and stuff, yeah. like where they people auction off ones that are, I guess, not being paid for or people forget about. So if they even have reality TV shows around it, it's like must just be a whole like ecosystem or a whole market over yeah. there. In 1984, so what's that, 40 years ago? Fuck, we're getting old because we're like yeah, in the like, 80s. Yeah, I was like, we're 38. <laughs> 40 years ago, um, or 38 years ago, in 1984, mm-hmm. there were a about 6,600 self-storage buildings. Now there are over 50,000. So oh, it's, yeah. it's uh, whatever, 9x in 40 years. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy. Uh, as you just said, in fact, a surprisingly large number of storage units are eventually abandoned. According to the company Simply Self Storage, 155,000 storage units are auctioned off every year. Such popular cable shows as Storage Wars and Auction Hunters chronicle this uniquely American phenomenon. No, I always, I'm always Phenomena. that word. Phenomenon. <laughs> the average auction generates 425 per unit. I didn't read this article, by the way, so I just like. Of course mm. not. No, I found it. I know you did, but I'm just saying, like, because I mentioned storage wars and stuff. Like, yeah, it was, like, yeah. It's, it's a common show. It's the first thing as soon as you hear story, like storage, storage? like you, have, you, you think of storage think of, wars, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the average auction goes for 425. So you're in the sort of eBay business, like we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people make their money off bidding on these units. It can be done in Australia. Just. There's just not that much good stuff. Well, I've there's seen. not as many units, right? And there's probably just not as many. So that means not as many are abandoned. And it's also just the the culture and the age of the nation. Like, mm-hmm. there's not that much history here. All we have, all there is, is just like old mattresses and chairs and crappy Sony CD players and a pair stuff. Of golf clubs. Whereas over there, you got you know war memorabilia. Um, you got. Oh, there'll be so much more history, right? Way like, more history. Yeah, because like, yeah, like you're saying, the country's so much older. People are probably been collecting for longer. A lot more things are passed down. Whereas like here, we have a lot of, not whether it's fast fashion, fast furniture, all that kind of stuff is relatively cheap, so it doesn't last as long. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Generally speaking, as Americans, America's family size has grown smaller, its living space has grown dramatically larger. Just after World War II in 1949, 
The average new single family home measured just 909 square feet. And in 2001, it is basically averaged at 2,480. So it's more than doubled and a half almost. So, and I guess that sort of ties in like, you know, when people collecting or they're buying stuff to show off themselves, like people are getting larger homes to show off like, hey, I can afford this larger space. I'm more wealthy. Um, that might tie into it a little and bit like as well. And things like open plan living and just mm-hmm. larger furniture, like couches are like much larger, yeah. all that sort of thing. Everything's just bigger, bigger TVs, you need a bigger couch to accommodate the bigger TV. And I guess like back then as well, like a lot of people weren't spending a lot of time indoors, if you think about it, because a lot of time- yeah, at work most of the time. Exactly. So like you're at home, you're like in front of the TV and with the internet, all that kind of thing. So you're spending more time at home, so you need a better space at home. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's wild. I mean- it's also like we're we're in a very wealthy era in the West Westernized world where you can afford to spend money mm-hmm. every day on new stuff. Like back then, it was like you spend money on your bread and your milk, and then what, like there's not that many that many shops to like go and spend money at. Consumerism wasn't as prevalent, I guess, back then as it is now. Until the 1950s, most homes had detached garages. So this is an interesting one. Then came homes with single car attached garages. Then two car garages by the year. 2,000 three-car garages were becoming common. Like for your cars and then for your storage. Exactly. A considerable percent... You, you're, uh, you could have wrote this article. You're, uh, you're ahead of me. <laughs> a considerable percentage of private garage space is used as an on-site storage unit. Right. Recent studies indicate that 25%, so a quarter of people with two-car garages, don't park in them at all. Just because like they, they're just using it for storage. Like us. <laughs> so even like when you're going, we go for a dog walk or something, people have their garage open. Mm-hmm. The cars are always at the front and yeah. it's just racking and mm-hmm. tubs of whatever Christmas stuff um, just yeah. lying around in the garage. So and like, some people use it as like a like a media room as well. Sometimes yeah. they'll have like a couch, like a little TV, like a, I guess like a... I was about to say, what's a bloke's den? What's it called? A guy's- Bloke's den. No, bloke's den. Man cave. Man cave. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, like it's like bloke's den. You could uh, make a whole new brand. (laughs) Bloke's den. Bloke's den. Um, But yeah, like like people turn them into man caves. Fella space. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it's just interesting. Like you're paying all this money on rent and mortgage and stuff. And then you you pay for a you get in a two car garage and it's just used for more space and then you got to expand into off site storage as well like it's like we just I think people just spend too much money I and, think and it's like, but it is it's too tempting to there's so much interesting stuff to buy for sure and it's just like that that self control in a way as well right like you see something nice you want to buy it you know you have a you want to complete the collection or things like that rather than just like taking a moment pause and be like hey do I really need this can I really afford this what am I going to be doing with it in like six months time. Or can I like sell something to replace it? Like yeah, sell one, buy one. Exactly. Like, um, but this ties into a current article about Alan Jones. So Controversy for, around if this. Not in Australia, Alan Jones <laughs> has been on the radio for some time. Uh, he caused a lot of – he's just controversial in general, right? Oh, he's just like, he's just like an old dude with like he's of opinions, he's right? Just super, so, yeah. super old mentality and mm-hmm. um, boomer mentality. Yeah. Like, probably a bit more right than left-leaning, I would say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So not it's, as woke as the the. He is not people. quite as woke. No. Um, potentially, he might be these days. Who knows? This is from the Guardian. Would you buy a dubious sculpture or a large quantity of trousers from Alan Jones? So he was con- selling. It, sorry to interrupt. He was selling his like socks. Oh, and I'm going to show you. Oh, I'm yeah, going to show okay, you what good. he sells. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> the controversial former broadcaster Alan Jones reportedly didn't quite get the 17.5 million dollars he wanted for his farm in New South Wales. What a shame. 
So he's auctioning off some of its contents, pretty much all of his contents, re- realistically. If you have a look at them. His 2006 Silver Bentley, estimated to fetch up to 90K, is among the headline items, uh, as well as plastic pedestal fans, fake flowers, and a range of men's trousers. Other objects include a collection of empty wine bottles, fake flowers, broken uh, glass va- vase, vase or vase? I say vase. vase. Vase, yeah. Vase Vase, with a plastic, with a broken (laughs) bars or base. Base, bars. So that's confusing um, (laughs) use of use of English literature, uh, literary words. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) potato, potato, right? (laughs) Exactly. And a pottery sculpture depicting a toilet, a brush, I thought it a toilet, a bush, a bush toilet. I mean, I'm I'm not on it today. Um, There are untested kitchen electricals, including pressure machine, etc. Um, there's a bookshelf including a whole range of books. So you just buy like a bookshelf with all the books included, right? Right. So we'll go have a look at these items real quick and we'll move on to the next segment. So like the the main tie in here is like if you can afford a $17.5 million bush property yeah. farmhouse mm-hmm. and you fill it with all this interesting artwork and decorations and then you just like – you just send someone in to say, take a photo of everything, list all of it. Yeah, and they've like, like taken no, it. That's our mentality, no attachment, right? No, no connection to any oh, of it. And they've taken it like literally, right? So like broken pieces, empty bottles, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So just, this guy may have been a hoarder, everybody. Or he might be in um, financial disarray or health yep, problems, distress, distress yep. and need to get a quick bit of cash potentially. But it's kind of just an interesting time that, you know, do we really need all this stuff? We've got a terracotta. If you're watching on, oh, if you're listening to the pod in the audio form, you can check out the video on Spotify and on YouTube. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button, like as there. well. Yeah, and leave a review as well. Thank um, you. And you can see on the screen here, we're going to display some of the items he has for sale. So he's a, a broken, uh, a fake plant, essentially. Uh, faux tree. Forks, a fox tree. Faux tree. Faux tree. Uh, um, we've got some concrete figures. Some of like, them are kind of interesting. Are some of these like actually antiques or they just like reprinted They antiques? could just be like from the local um, dollar store kind of cardboardy type figures. Who you knows? You know when you like travel up to the mountains and you pass those big lots with like all the pottery and all the statues and everything? Yeah. Yeah, one of those Balinese teak bed, timber, elephant stool, all sorts of stuff. Also, I wonder if, like, he has no attachments. Like, how many of these were actually gifted to him? Because he's been quite So, quite that's popular. what's interesting. Because yeah. there is, I don't know if it's on this page here. Um, let me see if I can find it. Human. Heaps of stuff is just gifted to him, right? Right. So, a human nature. So, if you're familiar with Australian pop icons, human nature. A personalized human nature varsity jacket with his name embroidered on there. Right. So, stuff is just given to him. And he doesn't yeah. care about it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a photo of him wearing this jacket with him, with the rest of the of the band. Yeah. And he was auctioning off that photo as well. So he just doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. At all. No. But like, I wonder how much of this stuff is actually going to get sold. All of it will get sold for sure. It's just like random photos of him and Gay Waterhouse, the the uh, horse training mogul. Just like random, a framed NRL shirt. Like literally bits and bobs. Just. Complete bits and bobs, like pure stuff you would have in storage if you could afford storage. <laughs> but he has a, a $17 million farmhouse to store all this stuff, right? Yeah. Bunch I see, of like, just, some are just like $10 bids and things yeah, like that. Yeah, a bunch of it's, okay. it's trash. But, I mean, if you're a reseller like us, you can get in there and you get some Buy stuff some to flip. Stuff. You had some like vintage VHS mm-hmm. um, collections getting rid of. I wonder if he has any good vinyls. But I know like some of his books are a bit um, a bit 
bit racist, aren't they? Uh, some, some of his artwork yeah. and stuff is a bit racist. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So we'll move on from that. Enough of Alan Jones talk. But yeah, it's just <laughs> interesting that, you know, people are spending so much money Yeah. when you can be investing in other things like yourself yeah. or your business, which exactly. takes us into this next episode from entrepreneur.com. Five priceless lessons for first-time entrepreneurs. I always, I always mess that word up. What, entrepreneurs? Entrepre- is it manure or manure? It just de- <laughs> it just depends how, like, again, it's I'll like tomato, 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 entrepreneurs. Okay, it's just fun to say. I say entrepreneurs. Reinventing the English language here. Um, so this is just an interesting article written by this female uh, founder, Gabby, about her little startup she's she's running and just some lessons that she's learned from it Yeah, and for, for people to take away if they're starting something in 2023 or if you're listening to this in the future. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people like run into a business head first, right? Or even just like a side business, a, ho- a side hustle business, whatever you want to call it, without sort of thinking like, yeah, I want to make this amount of money. I want to do this and this and this. But you sort of forget like the foundation for yourself and like what you need to do to look after yourself as well yeah. at the same time. A lot because- of it is just revert back to basics instead of getting too much in the the business or productive mindsets. Like. Mm-hmm. What's going to help me stabilize the business and myself so everything operates efficiently? Yeah, exactly. So the road to entrepreneur. <laughs> I'm now going to think about the it every time on- I say entrepreneurship. <laughs> the, the road to entrepreneurship isn't as glamorous as what's portrayed on the hashtag entrepreneur side of Instagram. Oh yeah, with the Rolexes and the suits and the, the jets. and the jets yep. and the you know Ferraris, whatever you want to call it's it. It's very rarely like the the 18 hour days. The formula for success doesn't contain any jets. <laughs> you're, are you reading ahead? No, I'm not. You, Honestly, I'm ruining, not. <laughs> you're reading all the highlights I've put together here. I'm the just form- a little psychic today, apparently. The formula for success doesn't contain any jets or fancy clothes or cars, but rather a ton of grit and conviction. Here are five lessons Gabby's learned as a first-time female founder. So, number one, don't wait for perfect. This is a good one for you, I'd say. Uh, okay. No. No, it's one of those things. Oh, like, I could say the same for you, though. Yeah, no, like I guess, I guess everybody strives for like perfection, right? But then it's that whole philosophical question, like what is perfection, and can you actually get there? Is it taking time away from just getting the job done? Exactly. Yeah, but like you just stressing too much about it, making you know crossing the t's, dotting the i's, all that kind of thing, rather than actually just like saying, "No, nah, that's good enough. Move on." Yep. Mm. I think we're good enough. I mean, yeah. I think the show is coming along well. If you think so. Give us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. Yes, thank See you. what I did there? That was yeah. a quick, quick little... A little nice little plug there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> when you're building a business, speed of iteration will be your best friend to success. Start somewhere. So, with speed of iteration, mm-hmm. the ability to just like make that change, just a small one, but make it fast. Mm-hmm. No decision is perfect and few decisions will result in the death of your company. So, I guess don't be afraid of making those iterations. Yeah. Um, and it's a matter of making small actionable steps daily to reach your goals. The first iterations of the product will likely be rocky and without feedback, it's possible to, uh, without feedback, it is impossible to iterate effectively. Yeah, very true. Like feedback is 100% super important, but even just like the fact of not like planning so much that you don't even get started in the first place. And that's something that I fall short on is like I have these worries to be like, no, it needs to be, I need to be prepared. I need to have all the information before I jump in. But again, that's just like stopping you from jumping in the first place and it's just going to delay the inevitable. Yeah. Well, it ties into that podcast we're listening to yesterday with Dickie Bush. He's um, he's a guy on Twitter that does a daily thread. He's like very active in writing. He started a, a little project and like, a, what would you call it? Like an accountability group slash project called, so. yeah. called Chip 30 for 30 to help other people get writing every day on Twitter and just get out of the perfection mindset. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's one thing he did when he started. He's you can you can sit there and make it try and make it perfect and procrastinate the entire time. Um, but you just make those small changes over time. And he was saying that the interviewed the first fifty people that signed up interviewed them all for I think an hour each to get the feedback. Mm-hmm. So that's the importance of the feedback to then figure out what people want, what can I change, and not rely on myself for making it perfect, but rely on other people to give that feedback so I can cater it to everybody as opposed to just what I think is best for the scenario. No, for sure. And especially if you're building it for someone else or if you're creating it for someone else, there's only so much that you can come up with personally. There's only so much you can do. So you need that outside input to then be able to take it to the next level. Especially if you are a little bit more advanced and further down the journey, then you have your slightly more... um, professional professional but like slightly more advanced view of how things are done as opposed to the beginner who you're sort of catering to right yeah because like your your knowledge and where you are can make you your opinion biased right like you're not you can't maybe not remember where you were at when you first started you can't remember like how hard it was or you're like oh it's so easy now like i know what i'm doing so having that input from people either just starting out or through the middle at the end like it's yeah super valuable because it helps whatever project you're doing, whatever business you're trying to do, even yourself grow. Yeah. So that first point again for you guys listening is don't wait for be don't wait for the perfect time. Um make small iterations. Don't be afraid of them destroying the business and then rely on feedback so you can improve things essentially. Yeah. And don't be afraid to like make the changes. Yeah. Just don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. Next step is bringing the right folk folks. 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 That's folks. all folks. Good people build good teams and good teams build good products. It's essential to clarify the type of culture you're looking to build your business around and focus on aligning the right people that will bring that will add value to the specific culture. So hiring and firing, making sure it's very clear what your business is trying to achieve and the type of culture that you're trying to garner. Oh, 100%. You've got there's so many like um, CEOs and stuff out there. So like Richard Branson, for example, like when I was doing that research on the episode that we did not long ago, um, something that he really said that sort of stuck with me is he doesn't know everything. He's not an expert in everything. So you hire the right people around you that then can help you grow and build and stuff as well at the same time. So like when he started Virgin Records, he liked music, but he wasn't super passionate about music. So he had someone or hired someone that like loved music, that knew it in and out, like that was just so passionate about it and they were running the company for him. Yeah, and it ties into the previous, um, to- um, the first point here, right? You, you're not going to be perfect. You can't hire, you can't know ahead of time the perfect person. So it's about, like this says here, making sure you're filtering them by showing the culture that you're trying to create mm-hmm. um, to hopefully weed out the people that are not best suited initially, but you're never going to really know until you're in there. And then the small iteration is firing if you need to. Yeah. Uh, luckily, luckily, we're not at that point where we're employing anyone yet, but I mean, you work in retail still. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I imagine the hiring process isn't easy and you're not you don't have control over the culture you're no. just part of the culture. And like something that happens quite frequently is someone might interview really really well like they maybe are prepared know the questions they maybe even prepped the interview but when push comes to shovel when they're actually in the role you're like something's not adding up you're not doing what you said you're doing you're not performing as well as i thought you would so then that's when the feedback aspect comes in so you give them feedback see if they improve and if they don't improve then you're like 
this bit is not the right fit for you. But they can give you feedback as well. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like that feedback goes both ways, whether you're a manager and a, you know, just a normal team member, whether you're on the same level as a partnership, that feedback is so crucial to go back and forth because, again, it helps with growth. Especially if you're a first-time founder, you're going to need every bit of feedback from your employees mm-hmm. as possible so you can make everything better. Yeah. Um. The next part of it says, take your time in selecting who is in your inner circle. This includes your team, but also other stakeholders as well. Your investors, your partners, and your customers. Align those folks best. Oh, sorry. sorry I'll, I'll start that one again. I was on a roll for a bit. Align those folks behind a customer-obsessed mindset. Be relentless in surfacing your customers' pain points and feedback. So, it's not just about finding the right folks in terms of your employees or partners, but making sure you're focused on the customer, their needs, their pain points, and then catering to them as well. And then, again, listening to their feedback. No, 100%. So whether it's like you make content and you're focusing on your audience or like you have a retail space and you're focusing on your customers or, you know, you're creating a service and you need people to sign up, like it's it's one of those things like you need to know exactly who you are serving um, cause if you don't, then you're not going to have a clear vision. You're not going to have a clear direction. Then it's just going to seem chaotic. And then how can you get feedback on chaos? Yeah. And I think there's like a common, I'm not going to get the quote exactly, but it's like you try to serve everybody, you end up serving nobody. Mm-hmm. So something to keep in mind. Next point is reflection is vital. Everyone will have a different path to subduing various levels of anxiety, confronting the good and the bad through reflection gives you the privilege of growing and maturing. So it's just being open. Um, or making time to like reflect on the things that are or are not working to reduce the anxiety because like running a business or, a, or running a, a small company with multiple staff is like a stressful thing. It's stressful enough for me to just run out t- tiny little hustle, right? So mm-hmm. you can only imagine what it's like as you scale up. So taking time to reflect is important and then not beating yourself up over the, the losses but then not getting too high on the wins I think is very important. When faced with a new challenge, this is from the article, take those steps forward and focus on what you can control. Those previous challenges will help you know that you can get through another. So, yeah, learning from experience and reflecting on previous wins and losses. Yeah. And that's like that's more of like a personal aspect. So, rather getting outside input, that that reflection on your performance, on your input, like it's so, again, I think I said vital before, but it's so, so important whether you're whether you journal about your personal life, like that self-reflection helps with like emotional maturity. It helps you to be able to look at things in a retrospective sort of way to be like, all right, this I could have done differently. So now I know what to do next time. Like having that level of like reflection is really, really handy. And it also, I think it's like a biblical quote, but it's like, it's like a good quote. It's like change the things you can accept the things you can't and be wise enough to know the difference. That's like one of my favorite sort of quotes. Is it? No, I'm it's not super old, religious. Old Testament, is I think, it? I think it's like a biblical one, but <laughs> no, but it, you can you can search it up if you want to. Well, but it's like, a, that's fine. Yeah. No, but it's just one of those things like you, but you're only going to be able to be wise enough to know the difference if you self-reflect, like if you reflect on it. Yeah. Because, yeah, there's so many things that are caught in the back of your mind unless you capture them on, on page or something. They're just, they're in the back there, but sometimes it just, it takes the physical writing or mm-hmm. even just having a conversation with someone to like get it out. Yeah. And if and if you don't reflect then you're just going to be reactionary all the time, right? You're just going to be reacting, reacting, to reacting to all these scenarios rather than just like stopping a moment and be able to just have a look at it from an outside point of view. Which is something I struggle with 
pretty much hourly. Oh, well, <laughs> re- being, being reactive is like, it's a quite a common thing. Like I can be quite reactive. Like sometimes I'll speak before I think and all that kind of thing. And so it's just, it's just being aware about it and then just taking small steps to sort of change. So whether you journal, whether you have like an information dump or something at the end of the day to really just sort of like get all that out there. But it's just about putting little habits in place to, I guess, start that reflection process if you don't really do it. Yep. Couldn't agree more. The next uh, topic, I'm kissing in a segment. Next top, uh, next point from this article rather is capital isn't the only thing you can gain funding for. So a good investor relationship in my mind is not, so this is from, this is Gabby speaking, not me. A good investor relationship in my mind is not based on the foundation of capital providers and so not how much cash they can front up. The best investors are those with whom we have a true partnership. They are the ones we can call for help. They are excited by what we are doing and take the time to learn about you and the vision of your company. Just as much as you are telling them your vision, they should be telling you theirs. So it's it's not just a financial transaction. They have to be interested in the business, interested in you, how you're operating, um, be, be an advocate for the company and the brand as well, as opposed to just like a a wallet, a bank provider. Oh, no, 100%. And that's like that sort of ties into like having the right people around you, right? So you want people that are, you know, investing in your business to be just as passionate as you are, right? Because that means they're going to do all they can to make it successful. Like if you have someone who's in it just for the money and just for, you know, that return investment, then they're going to cut ties. They're going to, you know, make decisions based on, I guess, the financial aspect rather than the, you know, the vision of the company yeah, or, you know. focus on their return on investment. Exactly, yeah. Rather than the idea or like the, the future aspect that it can help. Yeah. I mean, there's something you see, I mean, we haven't watched it in a while, but Shark Tank is like uh, a good yeah. way of kind of thinking about it because they have four or five of the, the sharks there offering to whatever, acquire 10% or own 10% of the company. Um a lot of the time they'll, they'll do like a, a cut to like behind the scenes of them sh- walking around the company and like being involved as opposed to just being a financial asset or an investor to the company. It's yeah. like it's like a, a mental investor mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, there's different type of investing, right? You've got like angel investors, you've got like everyday investors, you've got people that are like, you know, like I actually want to be, you know. On the board. Yeah. Like making decisions. Decisions yeah. as well. Yeah. So it just depends, I guess. And that's what that ties into is just, yeah, like making sure that the people who are giving you money or giving your advice are just as passionate as you are. Make sure they give a fuck. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's easy to think about on a large, large, huge, multi-million dollar business type scale, but it's also just as important on a, I know, a, a team that's five to ten people, the mm. people that are putting in money, you need to know they actually care. Yeah, because if they don't care, they're not going to put in the effort. And they've probably got 20 other things they've already got money in as well and like you're just 2% of their time or 2% of their attention. Mm-hmm. Next part, next part of this uh, article is create goals outside of your business. You will undoubtedly be tested and pushed outside of your limits and challenged to push through many mental barriers. Another helpful way is to grow. Another helpful way to grow is to create accomplishments outside of work. Hard to believe when you are deep in the trenches, but wins won't always come from your business. Set goals and crush them both in and out of your organization. Can't agree with that point more. Like, if you don't have personal goals, then it's just going to be all work. And, like, it just reminds me of, like, the shining, like, all work. The shining? And, yeah, like, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy. Is Jack or Johnny? 
Johnny? Jack. I think it's Jack. No, he's Johnny. Like, his name's Jack, but he's Johnny for short, right? Is that quote from that movie or is that like a an age-old quote? I think it's I think it's actually from the, sh- the Shannon. The Shannon? Let's, have, let's, uh, let's clarify who's- All work and no play. Makes Jack a dull boy. Oh, I got boy. it wrong. Yeah, Jack a dull boy, not Johnny. Where'd I get Johnny from? Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Sorry, some writers have added a second part to the proverb. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. All play and no work makes Jack a mere toy. Ah. So it is in The Shining and mm-hmm. used to illustrate how the film's central figure named Jack has lost his mind when his wife discovers that he procrastinated and had written the sentence over and over again on hundreds of pages of the typewriter. Uh, I think we're both right, technically. Yeah. We'll go, we'll go with a yeah. equal distribution of knowledge. But yeah, that's like that's the whole thing, right? So if you're focused solely on work and only have work goals and your life is centered around that, then there's going to be like other parts of your life lacking, right? So you really need to have those goals outside of that environment. Like it's good to have goals in different areas because, again, that comes back to growth, right? It comes back to emotional maturity or like that sort of level. You need to have other goals. Yeah. And if the business fails, you need to know that you're winning in other aspects of life yeah, or at least trying to accomplish other aspects, whether it's family, health, fitness, um, creative, creative, just mm -hmm. knowledge seeking. Um, But yeah, business is not everything. But I mean, there is that hustle culture of people at work 24-7. Like I don't know how Elon Musk manages so much, but does he have personal goals that he's like, you know what I mean? It's it's very important to to think about. And I think exercise is like one of the, the biggest things for sure. Oh, yeah. And that's something that we're focusing on, right? Like you, like we can work as much as we like, but if we don't take that time to, you know, work out, meditate, do yoga, take those moments to it's, – it's like a moment to help reset as well, right? But also if you don't do that, it limits your ability to sustain the company or the business for a long, long time as well. Yes. Like if you – if you're not working out, you're doing business 24 seven, then yeah. your health's going to be compromised. Well, your the stress bi- will be high. The business will be compromised. So, yeah. so definitely interesting to work out and keep the blood flowing, especially mm-hmm. now that Netflix has partnered with Nike. Yeah. So this is an interesting little collab that came across the radar this week. Yeah, I had no idea about this. Apparently, it's been around for a while. Not a while, but it's been around for a few weeks now. It's been in talks for a little while. Nike and Netflix. Oh, sorry, Netflix. This is from. Uh, payments.com P-Y-M-N-T-S.com I guess they just deal with like online transactions and businesses and stuff. Mm-hmm. Netflix and Nike Training Club Pact represents another flat for Peloton. So we'll get into this one. Interesting, interesting collab that, I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, but I don't know why it hasn't been attempted before. So the debut debut <laughs> <laughs> You really – it's, a, it's a the, double, the words that can have, like, more than one pronunciation, I think it's right? just a double shot of coffee, to be honest. Yeah. The debut of Nike Training Club workouts on Netflix Netflix is a potential coup of for both brands. Although conspicuously absent from the initial lineup is anything involving stationary bikes. Oh. On December 30th, Netflix announced that just before the new year, Netflix members will be able to stream fitness content from the Nike Training Club for the first time ever, ever, ever. <laughs> Each Nike Training Club program has multiple episodes, a grand total of 30 hours of exercise sessions released in two batches. So I think there's going to be 90 different videos you can watch and they're mm-hmm. sort of separated into 10, 20 and 30 minute workouts. And as I said, there's no stationary bikes needed. A lot of it is just body weight 
exercises or like, like yoga a, or so like a in your lounge room type workout wh- where you're gonna watch netflix most of the time exactly i'm surprised they actually haven't done this sooner because with like hardly anybody has like a dvd player well we don't have a dvd player but like you know you used to go out and get your fitness dvds your michelle bridges P- and- i bought back in the day p90x oh that was like the hectic one and expensive and yeah. you used to get the you have to buy a door frame like chin up bar mm-hmm. and it destroyed the the skirting around of the doorway. Did, My yeah. parents were so cut. <laughs> um, but that was, uh, I did it for like a week and it was just too intense. Mm-hmm. I think his name is Tony Horton. Um, just insane workouts. Yeah. And just, it was literally just like chin up bar and uh, resistance bands. And I was yeah. like, P90X. It was like a fake, fake bar copied one wasn't the real one was like hundreds and hundreds of dollars yeah like that was like the premium sort of one to get but you'd be able to get like a michelle bridges or whatever like everybody would have their own like fitness sort of style dvd um but yeah that's what you used to do pop it in the dvd player and then do a workout in the lounge room but now that most people are on streaming services like it's it's pretty interesting they haven't done it before do you remember on like the early morning channel 10 that lady that used to do the workouts like in front of the sydney harbour aerobic size style yeah is that her yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. that used to be on like it you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock every morning. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm surprised they don't even have that sort of – they don't even have that on TV anymore. I think the interesting thing here is cost of access or to access. Mm-hmm. So, a style, all you needed was some um, some high socks, some short shorts, and a, a yoga mat. Yeah. Uh, and then P90X, you need a couple hundred dollars to get into it, right, plus mm-hmm. equipment expenses. Yeah, but Whereas now it's available on Netflix. On Netflix. So Nike used to have this on their app. I believe it was under subscription at one point and then they made it free mm-hmm. and then they just can't like got rid of it from their app, the Nike Training Club app. I think they had a partnership with Apple at one point to be able to have like you get three months free. Yeah, well they had um, like the Nike face and Apple Watch and stuff. They so, do, yeah. But they did remove it. Um, but the main thing is, yeah, cost of access. Now that everyone has a Netflix account, everyone yeah. shares it with their family. Mm-hmm. So... Really, there's no excuse other than laziness or lack of discipline to like get exercising with these uh, the new content on here because they're only in ten, twenty, and thirty minutes. Everyone like it. It is hard realistically to get an hour into your day of working out, but ten minutes, like, come on. Ten minutes is super easy. Like, ten minutes that's is a, so easy. That's just like you know, ten minutes of just scrolling on um, Instagram or TikTok or something like that. You can just do that instead. So members can simply search Nike on Netflix to bring up the catalog of workout routines. Subscribers who are deep, so this is the interesting part. Subscribers who are deeply engaged in watching streaming TV will want to get off the couch and exercise, increasing engagement with the platform while adding value to the subscription. Mm. So people are already streaming on there, right? Yeah. There's like, what's my excuse? I can't find a good workout. It's on, you're already pa- you're, you're paying for it already. Yeah. And like they've got the brand name out there. You know, everyone's probably got one piece of like Nike gear in their wardrobe. Like it's. You know, it's pretty well known. So if you see like a fitness program from them, you're like, oh, I'll check it out. Yeah. Hmm. So meanwhile, Peloton, a pandemic darling whose share price increased 477% from its September 2019 IPO to a high of $167 in January 2021. So they were booming in the pandemic. Everyone was doing at-home workouts. They were quarantined in lockdown. Peloton was like one of the primary um companies or investments to get into they've since lost 95 percent of its value since and is currently trading at a range of eight dollars per share so if you had an investment at 167 it's now eight dollars per share well like it makes sense like we're talking about this um before like how many how many peloton machines could you have in your house just just the one it's a one-off payment Uh, well maybe we have a nordic track which is essentially 
the same thing. I think they are faring better on the stock market. I'm not too sure. Well, because they have because Peloton's just bikes, right? Do they have other? Uh, I, I imagine they would have expanded into like yeah. ellipticals and treadmills and stuff. I mean, it doesn't Nordic's, make sense just Nordic's to do got, bikes. Got everything. Like we've got an elliptical machine. Um, we actually pay for the iFit. Well, that's the well. thing. Once yeah. you've got the device, you're not going to spend another $2,000 on another bike. No. Your ongoing fee is the subscription cost. 100%. Um, so that's interesting. The payments Q3 report noted that as in previous quarters, video streaming captured more daily users than any other digital activities at 35%. So, I mean, when you go on the internet, what do you do? 35% of people are, or 35% of the time, they're streaming videos. Mm-hmm. 30% is messaging. 28 to 29% is scrolling, then comes music, watching a live stream, so on and so forth. So, majority of people spending most of their time streaming video. Interesting. So, now they could be streaming video and be working out double whammy, yeah. two well, birds, one stone. Well, my, my yoga videos are on YouTube, so I do that via YouTube. So, that's, yeah, I'm just surprised they hadn't done it sooner. Like, I feel like COVID would have been the perfect time to, like, launch on so, Netflix, right? So this is the lost opportunity, right? Peloton announced the availability of its bikes, treadmills, and accessories on Amazon in August. Mm-hmm. So obviously they sold it direct to consumer through their website. Now, or in August, they pivoted to get it on Amazon. Everyone has Amazon in the US. Yes. Not such a big thing here in Australia. Uh, but not included in that deal, however, was Peloton's programming on Amazon Prime Video, which would make Peloton workouts available to the fitness-minded segment of Amazon Prime's 200 million subscribers, all of whom get Amazon Prime Video with a subscription. So they sell their devices, but there would have been opportunity there to get the actual content. Yeah. Because when you're on the device, on the uh, machine, you can play a video doing a workout with one of the trainers. Mm-hmm. They could have put that content on Amazon Prime because they already got 200 million subscribers. So they could have been potentially first to market, but there's a missed opportunity. Yeah. And then the the tanking share price is just like worsening the impact almost. Yeah, I feel like that's 100% a missed opportunity, especially if they're selling them through Amazon. Why not include like a, oh, if you get this, you get 10% off or you get like half price for a year, like just a little subscription to like get people in there. Yeah. Like, or like even Amazon Prime Day, like that's such a huge thing. Like make a big event of it, like get the Peloton machine through Amazon Prime and then yeah, get like something else cheap. Six yeah. months free of the of the um, of the uh, the workouts. Anyway, uh, Peloton, if you want to employ us, we're available. If we yeah, we want to stick with Nordic Track. We're already, oh yeah, sorry, we're not available. We're already loyal, <laughs> loyalists to the Nordic Track iFit. If you need some help with your marketing, just let us know. Oh yeah, we'll help you for sure. Um, so Motley Fool reported on Tuesday, January third, Peloton's near term outlook is grim. Inflation is curbing consumer demand for pricey bikes and treadmills, which start at fourteen hundred to three and a half grand. And require monthly subscriptions. So I think the big winner here is obviously Nike and Netflix. A because everyone has Netflix already. Mm-hmm. B because they're nice, simple, short workouts. Yep. And then C, there's no pricey cost for a device. Accessibility, right? Accessibility. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that's 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 what's going on. I I, don't, I think I might I might uh, do one. I might do one or two. The 20, 10, 20, and thirty minutes. We do have the Nordic track. We do a good 5 to 10K mm-hmm. movement on there pretty much every day or every second day. Yep. But maybe you can look on there for some uh, yoga ones and yeah, report, report as soon, back. As soon as that popped out, I'm like, I wouldn't mind like some some new yoga videos because I'm pretty sure the ones that I do are like, you know, from like five years ago. So Yeah. Even yeah. just simple body weight ones. Mm. Um, if you're really a gangster, you can put the speed on 1.5X and just 
Knock it out in eight minutes. Was the P90, P90X people out there just uh, watch it on fast forward? Yeah. So, I think, yeah, they said they're going to roll it out. Um, there's one initial batch they're rolling out and then they're going to roll out um, another batch of content coming soon. Speaking of content, we'll oh, get into a final segment. The queen of content. The queen of content, Barbara Walters. We're going to look at Barbara Walters' best moments as, as a trailblazer. Um, and, I mean, this is your segment. You're, I think you're, you can just be the... Yeah, the leader here because you've you found it quite interesting. You didn't know much about her prior, right? Like no. I think it's gonna be, you're gonna be the deep diver on these entrepreneurs. You did Richard Branson, I did, now you're doing yeah. Barbara Walters. I like I, I kind of enjoy doing these little deep dives, right? Because I sort of get stuck down rabbit holes a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, I just I didn't know too much about her. I just thought she was just one of those like American ladies on TV. I just didn't really realize that she was one of the first female anchor person. Out there, I was about to say anchorman, like anchor woman, anchor woman, yeah. But they used to be anchorman, right? Like it just reminds me, <laughs> you know, the actual anchorman movie, movie, yeah. You know that dynamic when she goes on screen right. and they like hate each other. I don't think it's based off her, but that was like the dynamic. Like That's these what dudes, we, yep, gotcha. These dudes hated these women coming in, taking up screen time, taking up like popularity, taking up stories, taking up minutes essentially, um, from them being able to speak and you know they would have to share their wages and all that kind of thing and they just hated these women encroaching on their space but she made she literally laid the foundation for female journalists even oprah um says if it wasn't for her she wouldn't be in the business that she was interesting yeah like and oprah is like the ultimate og so someone like barbara walters like i just had no idea how much of an impact she had on yeah, creating this space for women to come forth and be able to speak their story and, you know, actually have a career. Be represented in the media. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, being an absolute trailblazer, she shattered the glass ceiling and became dominant force in industry at once dominated by men. And she died on Friday or last Friday. 93. Yeah, 93 years old. She was quite. She lived for quite a long time, um, but I don't think they'll go into too much in this story, but she actually started to have dementia as she got older. So she was a recluse um, for the last couple of years. I was going to say she's been more notably known for doing The View in the last um, decade or so, right? Yeah. I think she retired in 2016 just because she started to have a bit of memory loss and stuff. So she actually was quite a recluse. Um, But- on the good side of it, so she joined ABC News in 1976. So she became the first female anchor on an evening news program, which is pretty awesome. Uh, three years later, she became a co-host of 2020. And in 1997, she launched The View. It's been around that long. Yeah. Like, I didn't realize, like, I knew that she was on The View. I didn't realize she actually created The View. Um, and the whole thing was with The View as well. And there's, like, an Australian version. There's, like, a UK version. It's all, like, over the world. Um, they didn't want her to be the host of it either. They just wanted her to be one of the women on the panel, which so, is really interesting. What, uh, as so, I just have a panel of people as opposed to just one. Like, yeah. what was the, what was the the reasoning for starting the? View? Like, obviously, she's been a news anchor. Mm-hmm. Stuff. What's the reasoning for doing the View? Just an all female panel. Well, one was like the all-female panel, but she wanted people from different backgrounds, different cultures. She wanted like an actual viewpoint of the whole bunch of different people or different women in general um, to have a platform to be able to speak um, because there was nothing like that at the time. It was mainly white. Um, It was mainly, yeah, just one sort of demographic, one sort of opinion, and she wanted something that had a bit more varied um, aspect to it. Um, But because she was such like a driving force, like 
Bob Bob Iger is that his Bob name? Bob Iger. Bob Iger didn't want her to be the host because she already already does so much already, and they don't want her to be, I guess, in but, the limelight so yeah. much. They wanted other other women to be like the host or the like it's a bit like how you do, you know, how you sort of like drive the conversation and you like direct the conversation different different areas. Right. Yeah. So kind of they kind of wanted everyone to have like an equal footing and yes. then just like a a moderator essentially. Yeah, that's the perfect word for it. They were a moderator and they didn't want Barbara Walters to be the moderator because she's so strong in general. So they just wanted gotcha. her opinion. Um uh, she landed many important interviews over the time um, and is one of those things, if you landed a Barbara Walters interview, you know you made it, right? Like she just interviewed so many celebrities. I actually didn't realize she interviewed so many political people as well, like heaps of presidents. Um, I think I was reading she interviewed more or less every president mm-hmm. since like the 80s or something. Yeah, 100%. She even interviewed Putin, man. Putin. Putin. Um, in her career, she spanned five decades. She won 12 Emmy Awards, 11 of those while at ABC News as well. Gangster. amazing. Yeah, so gangster. Um, she, one thing that actually sort of benefited her, I think that's why she was so good at doing these celebrity interviews was she grew up around celebrities at a young age. Um, so one thing that was really beneficial for her, she wasn't... Um, intimidated by them so she was able to push back and have these hard-hitting questions and that was like a bit thing about her was like was she asking those questions like were they too hard-hitting were they too controversial just to be able to get like points on the tv screen um or was she really asking what the people were thinking that was a thing like she would ask um i think it was celine dion is like do you have an eating disorder or are you bulimic and she's like i'm just asking what people will think i mean celine dion hasn't been in the in the news for a while so i imagine that was what, 90s? Yeah, this was all pretty, in the 90s. That would have been pretty yeah. controversial topic to bring up yeah. on TV back then. 100%. And, like, someone like Courtney Love, right, she was like, do you blame yourself for Kurt's death? Like, these really, like, full-on questions. Um, what was it? Go back. Um, yeah, she she originally started as, like, just a publicist, TV writer, before landing um, a spot on NBC's Today Show in 1961. Um, she would become the program's first female co-host in 1974 and won her first Emmy then. Um, so she just started off doing like, you know, fashion spots and like puff pieces and things like that. So it wasn't until she actually covered, um, oh, who got shot? One of the presidents? John F. Kennedy. Yes. It wasn't until she covered that, that they were like, all right, okay. She's, she can actually like handle this. Big news stories. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so in 1976, she found a new home on the ABC's Evening News, making history as the first female co-anchor of the Evening News program. So she did morning and evening. Yes. Yeah. She was like on TV all the time. Yes. Yeah, she did morning, evening and The View as You've well. You've literally highlighted this entire article. Try not to do it. Like, <laughs> I was like, it was, like, I'm trying to like, it's five decades, right? Yeah, like yeah, it's enough. a lot of, a lot of info. Yep, yep. Um, so yeah. So I think I already went past this. So during her inaugural broadcast in 1976, um, Walter scored an exclusive interview with Earl Butts, who had just resigned as president um, of the Ford Secretary of Agriculture. And it was revealed that he told a racist joke. Um she also conducted a satellite interview with the Egyptian president. Um, wow. So she was like re- doing like hard hitting political, not like I've f- always sort of associated her with the view and just whatever the new Will Smith topic is yeah, the week or just like celebrity interviews, celebrity right? gossip type interviews. But no. like back in the day, like she was doing some wild interviews. Yeah. Like with Fidel Castro and stuff like these people that were like communists and they had like all these like, like he called it a fiery debate, but yeah, all these people that were like scary in a way, right? Um, 
then I, as a year sort of went on, she did lighter interviews as well. Um, so she hosted the Oscars, uh, interviewed Academy Award winning nominees. Um, and then in 1994, she landed, launched the Most Fascinating People special, which a lot of people loved. Um, so where she would um, highlight some, you know, famous people that she thought was people to look out for, people that were interesting. Um, and then in 1999, so this is like the big one of her big interviews, um, was estimated 74 million viewers, mm-hmm. 74, which is huge. Yeah, when there's eight channels on the TV back exactly. in the day. I turned in to watch Walter's interview with Monica Lewinsky um, about the former White House intern affair with then-President Bill Clinton. That was a huge one. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, she, she, I mean, she must have covered every major news story for three or four decades. Yeah, um, and she did all the presidents, right? Nixon, Obama's, Donald Trump. Um, and then with The View, she created that forum of women with different backgrounds and stuff as well. So it was really interesting what she did for women out there. Um, got married a few times. Um, that's her and the other uh, scroll. What was her name? Scroll down. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Um, no, go back other up way. a little bit. <laughs> go back. Go down. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for people that are just listening. We are go, just going through an article. Keep going down. Um, just to, so I can see underneath oh, the underneath, thing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Diane, Diane Sawyer is the other uh, big OG female anchor woman. And out obviously, there. yeah. Are they similar age or should like pass the torch down to her? Uh, similar age. Okay. Yeah. So they sort of roughly start at the same time. So Diane Sawyer was, um, I think, yeah, she's another first female or something as well, which I should probably know. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Sad, sadly, sadly gone. I mean, a lot of the news anchors in Australia are female, like the more noticeable, notable ones as well. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like we sort of follow their trend a decade or so behind. So like obviously set a huge example for the way, I guess, media in general is um, convert, like displayed on TV by, by females. Yeah. So it's interesting. And here's some uh, memorable interviews. Yeah. Well, just like one other notable point on that. It was like, yeah, a lot of women were just done to do weather, just to do puff pieces and things they weren't really able to do those heavy hitting you know like those huge interviews right and she just helped sort of be like no we can do this people will watch us doing these interviews as well so it's pretty amazing why do you think was there a particular um aspect of her of her personality that got her pushed ahead of the males was she like maybe uh started in a smaller community and there was like uh, i guess easier people to leapfrog in terms of the men that are news anchors or anything? Or was it just like she forced her way through the door? Kind of forced her way through the door, but she was quite charismatic, very articulate, had a really good dry sense of humour. she go to university or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. She, she's, what, what she, do you know what she studied? Um, I'm pretty sure it was like journalism. So she went to uni. Just journalism, yeah. 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 Um, but she was very articulate, very charismatic and that dry sense of humour. And she was just very like... Not stubborn or hard-headed, but she was just like she knew exactly what she wanted, she's and she was dry. exactly she was able to get like just be able to cut through it. So that's why a lot of the presidents loved talking to her was because she was real, right? She would you know be honest in her opinion. She would never just be like fluffing them up, kind of thing. All right, well yeah. we won't fluff you up this episode <laughs> any longer. We'll be back next week for episode forty-six of the Look Mum, I'm Hustling Pod. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>